two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the, Lord, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall present the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able-bodied men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people uh, as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able-bodied men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses left his father and let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. See the context, avoid unimportant tangents, be aware of your audience, embellish a little, but not too much, keep it short. Those are a few of the guidelines psychology today gives to wannabe storytellers. So for those who want to grow in the art of telling a good story, following those pointers and others will get them well on their way, it is said. But as I was thinking about this passage that Aaron just read for us this week, I 
I think even more important than a good storyteller is a good story, right? I mean, I could be, I am, but for sake of humility, I could be the most engaging storyteller in the universe. But if you give me my phone company's terms of use agreement to read, it's not going to engage anybody. A good story, on the other hand, with intrigue and plot twists will keep anybody listening. Well, nobody had a better story to share than Moses did in Exodus chapter 18. So we've been in a series in the Old Testament book of Exodus. If you haven't been with us, Exodus was a book written by the prophet Moses concerning God's deliverance of his people Israel around the 15th century B.C. And this morning we come to an important passage in this book. So if you're a member of this church and you remember last year around this time we began this study and we divided this entire book of Exodus, 40 chapters, into two main parts. Chapters 1 through 18, we said, show God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And chapters 19 through 40 then show God's law and covenant being given to his people at Mount Sinai. We divided these sections and we we titled them God who saves his people and the God who rules his people. And and so with those two distinct parts in mind, again, we come to chapter 18 this morning and we see it operate, as one scholar puts it, as a sort of hinge for this entire book. So in, in the passage Aaron just read for us, we see verses 1 through 12, and we see Moses looking back on chapters 1 through 17 and what God has done. And then in verses 13 through 27, we see Moses and the aid of his father-in-law helping us see plans put in place for what's coming, for what Israel is going to go through, particularly how they will be governed. So with that hinge in mind, let's just spend our time this morning looking back and looking forward with Moses, all right? Looking back and looking forward. So first, looking back. If you'll remember last week, Israel has recently defeated the army of Amalek by the hand of their God. And there in verse 1, we see some welcome news. Moses hears from his family. You remember them? So we read there, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. You may remember back in chapter 2, Moses has fled Egypt twice. And the first time he did personally as a fugitive of the law. He had murdered an Egyptian. And as he had approached the land of Midian, he had taken refuge in the home of the priest of Midian named Jethro. Jethro had given him his daughter to marry, and they had had two sons before Moses had returned to Egypt. So at some point in Moses' return to Egypt to follow God's call and be God's instrument to bring Israel out of captivity, Moses had sent Zipporah, his wife, Jethro's daughter, and his sons, Gershom and Eliezer, back to his father-in-law. You wonder how, how anxious they would have been to hear news of his whereabouts and his welfare. And now, months later, in the wilderness, he receives this great news. His family's coming back. There in verse 5, Jethro and Moses' family come to where Moses is in the vicinity of the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. So we're not sure exactly how close they were to the mountain. They might have just been in the area. Uh, In verse 6, Jethro sends ahead word that he's coming. And in verse 7, we see what one writer appropriately calls a family reunion. 
Moses comes out. He welcomes his father-in-law. He bows down before him and treats him with honor, welcoming him into his tent. And then the storytelling begins. And Jethro had heard it already. We see that in verse 1. But here he listens as Moses himself explains firsthand what the Lord has done. Look at there, verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Can you imagine listening to that? I assume Moses told his father-in-law everything. How Yahweh, that personal name for the Lord of Israel, the Yahweh, the self-existent, covenant-keeping God of Israel, had turned the Nile into blood, had sent plagues of frogs and gnats and flies, boils and hail and locusts, culminating in deep darkness and the destruction of all Egypt's firstborn. How Yahweh had spared his people death by a sacrificial animal's blood smeared on their doorposts. How he had given them favor so that they plundered Egypt on their way out. How he had appeared in a pillar of cloud and fire to guide them. How he had opened the Red Sea so they could pass through and then close it up over Pharaoh's troops, crushing them in their chariots. How when they had arrived at the bitter waters of Marah, he had made those waters sweet. How he had rained down bread from heaven, manna to sustain his people. How he had appeared on the rock at Massa and received the blow of the staff as judgment on himself, pouring out water for thirsty sinners. How he had worked on his people's behalf to conquer the army of Amalek. I mean, I'm just overwhelmed and short of breath showing what has already happened in a brief summary. So imagine Moses, who has just lived through it, sharing with his father-in-law, with whom he had spent the previous 40 years in Midian, Certainly, at times during that deliverance, Moses had despaired, hadn't he? Given up hope that rescue was possible. But now, in the wilderness, he speaks to the faithfulness of Yahweh, who had always assured him that his promise would not fail. So here Moses shares this story with Jethro, and even if Moses' speech problems remain, remember we saw them back in chapter 3, and his storytelling isn't the greatest here, the story itself must have captured Jethro's heart. Because there in verse 9 he says, or he responds, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. It must have been clear from Moses' story, that the hero of this, this story of deliverance was not Moses, but Yahweh. Look at verse 1. The Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Verse 8, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. Verse 8 again, how the Lord had delivered them. Verse 9, all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. It was so clear that Israel's God had done it all. So there in verse 10, Jethro, this priest of Midian, worships Yahweh. I'm not exactly sure what it meant that Jethro was this priest. Probably means he was a priest of another false religion. 
We also know he was not an Israelite, obviously. But here, surprisingly, he worships the God of Israel. What does he say in verse 11? Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they, speaking of the Egyptians, dealt arrogantly with the people, speaking of Israel. Jethro is kind of fulfilling here what had been God's purpose all along in this deliverance, right? God had said it over and over again that these signs and wonders, this deliverance was all going to go down so he would get the glory, so that he would be shown to be the Lord. Uh, Take, for example, back in chapter 9, verse 16, he had said regarding Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Yahweh had wanted both his people and the Egyptians, his enemies, to know that there was only one true God, and it was Yahweh. And here we see that coming to pass. We see this unfolding. As Jethro, this foreign priest, comes and gives glory to Yahweh and Yahweh alone, declaring that Yahweh is God. Yahweh is the only God. He, there in verse 12, brings sacrifices, and they're offered to God. And then Aaron and the elders come and they eat together before God. The church, just recall with me what we've seen so far in Exodus. How Yahweh, against all opposition, has now shown he is the one true God. And now we see Moses sharing this news as it expands ever outward, even towards those not part of God's people. Dear brothers and sisters, we too have a story to, show, to, to, to tell, don't we? And just like Moses looked back at slavery and how horrible it was and, and rejoiced and then shared eagerly how Yahweh had delivered him and his people, how he had saved them from bondage and brought them out by a mighty hand, how he had done it to show his glory, how he had sustained them even in their wilderness wandering, how he had promised to bring them all the way home to the promised land. You and I, Christian, have an even better story to tell. An even better story of deliverance. If you're here and you're not a Christian, welcome. We're so happy that you would honor us by being present with us this morning. But would you mind if we rehearsed this story a little bit? It's an amazing one. It's a story that God made you and me to bring him glory as those made in his image. How we are designed to bring him praise. How we are designed as worshipers and worshiping the one who is truly worship worthy is where we find true meaning and joy. To find our identity. We don't look inward, we look outward. But in our sin, we have rejected that good design. Like the Egyptians. As Jethro said, we have dealt arrogantly with the Lord. We have lived like we are the gods of our lives. And we have pushed away the one true God, and in doing so have destroyed any chance we ever had of joy and fulfillment, leaving us without hope. God has not abandoned us. In his mercy, when we still despised him, He sent his son to deliver us from our bondage to our self-worship and our sinful rebellion. Jesus did this by taking all our sin on himself on the cross and dying our death 
that we deserve to die. One of my favorite ways to think about what Jesus has done, and it's taken right from the Bible, is this idea of a cup. You remember this? In the Old Testament, in the prophets, we see God's wrath, that is his just punishment for sin, pictured as this cup of wine that must be drunk by sinners. Drinking that cup means being justly judged by his perfect holiness. For sinners, drinking that cup means death. Spiritual, eternal death. But what Jesus has done is come and drink that cup for us. I remember what he said the night before he died. He said, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but as you will. And he knew God willed that his son would drink that cup of his wrath down to the last drop for his enemies, for you and me. Friends, that's good news. We deserve justice, but if we turn to Christ, we get mercy. We'll be delivered because Jesus has borne the judgment for us. We'll no longer be slaves to sin. We'll be set free. Friend, if, if you have never done that, if you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus this morning, you can know this freedom. Come talk to somebody afterwards. Talk to me or any people that you've seen standing up here leading in music. We'd love to share with you how we have found freedom from bondage to sin in the name of Christ. Dear Christian, that's our story. I wonder, do people around you hear it? Is it on your tongue? Do we share it? Do we rehearse it to ourselves? Do we remember daily what we have been delivered from? Beloved Christian, I don't mean to guilt you. Guilt is a terrible and sinful motivation for evangelism. I merely ask you, like Moses has done, to look back. Look back at what God has done for you. Write it down. And share it with someone else. This news is too good not to share. Our God is the one true God. He is greater than all gods. The world must know. All right, so that's looking back, verses 1 through 12. Let's look now at verses 13 through 27 and see looking forward. So remember, this is a, a hinge point in Exodus. So as we kind of put chapters 1 through 17 in the rearview mirror, we look ahead to this kind of new phase of the wilderness wandering of God's people as they're about to get into covenant with Yahweh at Mount Sinai. So they've been delivered, they've been set free, they've been saved, but they haven't been delivered. We've said this before. They haven't been delivered to live however they like, right? So they've been delivered from bondage to one master, to Pharaoh, to the so-called God who was evil and mistreated them. And now they've been, they've been delivered into not just wholehearted freedom, but actually new bondage to a better master, to one who has created them and knows them and has bound himself to them in promise to save. 
Remember what we said before, true freedom is not lack of restraint. True freedom is perfect restraint by a good and perfect master who cares for us. And so we see here in these last 14 or 15 verses an introduction to kind of the second phase of Israel in the wilderness. The second phase where they'll be at Mount Sinai as we see beginning next week in chapter 19, Lord willing. And we see this kind of as an introduction because we see Moses here dealing with God's law. Judging, dealing with the people, bringing God's law to bear. So there in verse 13, let's look. Moses gets back to work the next day. I guess he had a good day off with Jethro, wanting and dining. Now he's back to work. He spends all day hearing disputes among the people and making decisions. And Jethro, his father-in-law, and notice here we, we only see once he's the priest. We see about over 10 times he's Moses' father-in-law. And so it seems like his role here in Moses' life is one of a, a dearly loving paternal figure not some sort of priest with authority. And yet, so we see him humbly observing all of this and then just asking a question in verse 14. And he basically asks, what are you doing? Why are you doing this, son? Son Son-in-law? Moses responds by saying, I mean, his people need help. What else am I going to do? Verse 16, he makes known to them the statutes of God and his laws. Now, a a good number of scholars have looked at this and been like, well, it seems then that laws have already been given, right? So maybe this chapter 18 has been kind of forwarded to the front by Moses as the editor and author of this story to kind of intro us into Sinai. But actually, this story happens after the giving of the law. And there's plausible reasons to believe that. But I think if you look back at the wilderness wandering so far, God has already given some statutes, hasn't he? He's already given some laws. Think back to the waters of Mara, for example. So I don't think there's necessarily any reason to believe that this isn't happening right here before they get to Sinai. But either way you land on that, we see Moses here bringing whatever laws they have at that point to bear on his people, and it's running him ragged. Jethro, bless his heart, makes this bluntly clear in verse 17. You can use this. What you're doing is not good. Why? Well, as Jethro explains, it's simply not sustainable. And Moses can't keep doing this. He's going to wear out both himself and his people. I mean, imagine the workload. So we got a lot of college students, more than normal, here with us this morning. Uh, I think it's probably midterm season, and you're tired and weary, but I'm sorry, you got nothing on Moses, right? Uh, You workaholic adults who's put in 70 to 80 hours this past week. You're busy, but you got nothing on Moses, Moses here has the weight of tens of thousands of people on his shoulders, and he's in the desert. He's working from morning to night, and he can't even get the job done. There's a lot of parallels between this story and what we saw last week in the last half of chapter 17. And one of those parallels is that Moses is weak. Remember him standing up on the hill last week, holding the staff as Joshua battled with Amalek, and he couldn't do it? Again, we see here that Moses is, God's leader, Moses, is weak. And Jethro says as much there in verse 18. He says, the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Kind of what Aaron and Hur would have said to him last week as he held the staff. 
we see here, yet again, there is one true God, and it's not Moses. So Jethro offers some counsel. He assures Moses that he can continue to carry out his responsibilities faithfully while also appointing leaders to help him. So God-fearing men to handle the less important, less pressing cases. So if these men that he selects are divvied up among the people, then they can bring God's law to bear on Israel in a more effective way. He's setting up a system. And in this system, the tens of thousands of Israelites on the plains of Sinai, no matter how small or how remote they are from the center where they're meeting up with Moses, will be able to hear God's law and follow it. Jethro wraps up his counsel in verse 23. He says, if you do this, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. Now, one uh, writer I read this past week points out something helpful. that There are good things to learn here, right? This is full of practical wisdom. Uh, for someone like me, who is not a good delegator, both because I like doing things by myself and I like getting the credit for things I do by myself, I need to take this to heart. Maybe you do too. I, I think we see what Moses will become known for as a meek man. We see his meekness here as he takes advice from a non-Israelite and his father-in-law. And he says, yes, you're right. That's meek. Maybe you and I can learn a little bit about that. I don't think that's the most important thing to recognize about this hinge passage. There's something more going on. Tim Chester says it this way. He says, this story is right here because it paves the way for the giving of the law. Alec Matir, another scholar, echoes that. He, he says that arrangements are being made here whereby the word of God is being made available right down to the smallest group. So that daily life can be ordered now according to what the Lord has revealed through Moses. So do you see how this story is kind of preparing the way for God's law to be disseminated and heard and taught and believed and followed? There in verses 24 through 27, Moses takes his father-in-law's advice, puts it into action. And next week... We'll jump into chapter 19, where we see the covenant making on Mount Sinai begin. So this sort of hinge has, has swung us to the next phase of God's plan for his people. We'll see in the chapters to come that a holy God who has condescended to save unholy people loves them enough not just to deliver them, but to make them holy to consecrate them to himself as his special people. God cares not just about his people's happiness or their welfare, but how they live, their conduct. The one true God is the one who rules his people. Church, I think we can be reminded here that belonging to Jesus does not only mean we're saved from sin. It does mean that, praise him. But it also means we have a new life to live now. We have a new master now. We're no longer the so-called self-kings of our own kingdoms. Jesus is. 
over the years, some have tried to distinguish between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. Saying it's, it's possible that you can know Jesus as your Savior, but not your Lord. I think Israel would disagree strongly. Because they see Yahweh has delivered them from slavery. And now they're discovering more and more that he's delivered them, not just from something, but to something. He's delivered them from slavery to worship of a new king. A new king who will rule them and will bring them into a holy community that brings him glory. Church, this is our God. He was not only the God of Israel in the 15th century BC. He is the one true God. And he is our God. He's greater than all competitors. And so as we begin to study the second part of Exodus, we must remember that we belong to the king. He's our deliverer, yes. And he's our ruler. He has won the victory for us, yes, and now he's calling us to live in his victory for his name's sake. So I think an appropriate question to meditate on from this text is this. Christian, are you living in submission to the king? I mean, that, that may sound like an unexciting and somewhat legalistic way to end a sermon, but it's not. God has sent Jesus not only to be our deliverer, but to be our ruler. That also is part of the gospel. The gospel lived out in our lives because only in true submission to the true king can you find true joy. We're going to sing, the crowd will close us out today, but we're going to sing first in a moment about this one true God and his character. We're going to sing things like he's, un- he's eternal, He's unchanging, he's mysterious, he's glorious, he's great, he's sovereign, he's the one who rules us by his word. But before we sing, let's search our hearts. We can only sing sincerely about a great God who rules us if we're willing to submit to his rule, right? So are you Christian? I'm talking to Christians. Are you living out your deliverance from sin, this new freedom you have in Christ, in a way that yields to the control of God? Dear brother, dear sister, walk in daily submission to your ruler and Lord. Don't, don't walk in a way that fears he's going to judge you because that judgment, if you're, in him, if you're in Christ, has been fully and finally and completely put on the cross and there's none left for you. That cup we talked about before, there's nothing left in it. It's dry. There is no condemnation for you. As you walk in your acceptance, are you growing in holiness? Are you putting away sin? Are you living like Jesus is your king? Christian, might there be something in your life that you're holding on to this morning that you must repent of and turn away from in order to follow Jesus? For your joy, I beg you to do it.
bringing other people to counsel you in that. You're not the perfect understander of your own emotions and feelings. But respond to the Spirit's prompting to repent and to turn to your King. He's given himself for you. Give yourself to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the one true God. We rejoice in that. We pray for boldness to tell those around us what you've done. We pray for hearts to desire to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Lord, we ask that in the months to come, we would see new brothers and sisters brought into our midst as your kingdom expands like it was for Jethro. And as a church, we do pray that you would help us live in submission to your rule. We confess that our lingering sinful hearts buck up against that constantly. So give us a vision of the joy that comes from following you. Help us to love you as our Redeemer and our Ruler, our Deliverer and our Lord. Be with us now as we sing and bring praise and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.